welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about U.S. sanctions imposed on Iran and how the sanctions regime has been set up over the past four decades. We also discuss the effectiveness of this policy tool and its human costs and how the civil society and the Iranian-American community has been pushing back against sanctions. My guest today is Tyler Cullis, a counsel at Ferrari and Associates here in Washington, where he focuses on U.S. economic sanctions and has years of experience working with financial institutions, multinational corporations, and private individuals regarding U.S. sanctions involving Russia, Iran, and Cuba. Tyler, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thanks for having me. Tyler, let me start by asking you about current sanctions on Iran. We know there are a large number of sanctions imposed by the United States. Um, some are related to Iran's nuclear program. Some are related to Iran's support for terrorism. Some are related to Iran's violations of human rights. And they're imposed on various industries in Iran. Walk us through the different types of sanctions currently imposed on Iran by the United States. Yeah, I mean, you know, conceptually, I think we can sort this out into three buckets of sanctions. In the first bucket, there is what is known as a primary sanctions embargo. So the United States imposes an embargo on Iran that prohibits basically any commercial interaction between the two countries. Um, and, you know, that is a long-standing program that was first initiated in 1995-1996. Um, so it's been this way for 24, 25 years now. Um, but that basically prohibits any commercial exchange between the two countries. In the second bucket, what we have are what are called targeted sanctions. Um, and those sanctions, the most effective of those are tar sanctions targeted at Iran's financial institutions. Um, so the United States maintains a number of sanctions authorities under its counterterrorism, um, its nonproliferation, and its human rights programs. Um, and it uses those authorities to sanction Iran's financial institutions in ways that effectively isolate those financial institutions from the global financial system. Um, and, you know, the way it does it is, you know, somewhat complicated, but, you know, the, the, core, the, the core matter that the United States puts in front of foreign banks is you can either do business with the United States or you can do business with Iran. Um, and for most banks, that's not really a, a serious proposition. Um, so they elect to forego any um, continued interaction with Iran's banks. In the third bucket, we have what are called sectoral sanctions. And sectoral sanctions target broad sectors of Iran's economy, isolating those sectors from being able to engage with the outside world. During the Trump administration, those sanctions were used um, exhaustively. Um, so, you know, almost all productive sectors of Iran's economy, including its financial sector, its oil sector, its iron, steel, aluminum, copper sectors, all of these various sectors, and really, you know, what are the core productive sectors of Iran's economy are sanctioned and effectively isolated from the outside world to the point where, you know, if you're a party in Iran operating in those sectors, it's really hard for you to um, commercially engage outside of Iran. I'll ask you about the history of these sanctions a little bit later, but let's first talk about current negotiations happening in Vienna. We know 
Iran and the United States have been engaged in indirect talks in Vienna about a potential return to the JCPOA full compliance on the Iranian side. And the main issue on the table, at least from the Iranian viewpoint, is sanctions relief. Iranians want all or most sanctions imposed during the Trump administration to be removed. The U.S. side says they don't want to or they can't remove the entirety of these sanctions. And that's why negotiations are continuing to happen in Vienna. Talk about what's being discussed and the different layers of sanctions that we're talking about. And also explain how the Trump team basically created a landmine for Biden uh, to prevent or complicate his potential return to the nuclear deal with Iran. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, in, in May 2018, President Trump withdrew the United States from participating in the JCPOA um, and reimposed um, a lot of the all of the JCPOA sanctions and some additional sanctions as well. Um, you know, I noted at the time that what they did um, around in around May 2018, and the sanctions were reimposed later that year in November. Um, but what they did would be a big problem for any successor administration seeking to return to the nuclear deal and put Iran's nuclear program back into the figurative box. Um, and the reason for that is that, you know, you can imagine if Trump had just withdrawn from the deal and, you know, the question is, well, how does, how does Biden get back into it? Well, it shouldn't be that hard. There's a roadmap. Um, it's called the JCPOA. It's called Annex 2 to that agreement. And it identifies all the various sanctions that would need to be lifted in order for the United States to act in compliance with that agreement. But what Trump did is that when he reimposed sanctions um, on Iranian individuals and entities, and let's just take Iran's banks as an example, you know, formerly under Obama, those banks had been designated under the U.S.'s counterproliferation authorities. And, you know, that makes sense. The nuclear program was the core issue facing U.S. for U.S. policy towards Iran. Um, sanctions were reimposed in order to elicit uh, concessions from Iran with respect to its nuclear program. So the, Obama used the counterproliferation authorities. But what Trump did, and you know, very intentionally, they weren't very secret about this in, in the years afterward, is that instead of reimposing those sanctions under the counterproliferation authorities, what Trump did is he imposed a lot of the sanctions on counterterrorism authorities or under human rights authorities. Um, and the reason for it, as I noted at the time and then later was explained by a lot of the people surrounding the Trump administration, is that they wanted to make it really hard for any successor administration to be able to rejoin the nuclear deal. And that is because under the nuclear deal, all nuclear-related sanctions are to be lifted. But non-nuclear-related sanctions are purportedly supposed to be off-limits for the United States to lift, that we can continue to maintain sanctions with respect to you know, issues we have um, with Iran's support for international terrorism or its human rights abuses. Um, we can maintain those sanctions while also lifting the nuclear-related sanctions. And, you know, that point of tension um, was, you know, Trump took advantage of it and said, okay, well, if 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 you guys are saying that, well, what we're going to do, we're going to impose these sanctions on terrorism-related grounds and under, your, under, you know, Obama's and then Biden's theory of the nuclear deal, well, you guys shouldn't be able to lift those sanctions because those sanctions are imposed for reasons entirely separate um, from Iran's nuclear program. 
And again, this is all transparently laid out by people around Trump um, who explained that, you know, the purpose was not, oh, well, actually, we've decided in the interim that Iran's nuclear program isn't the issue. Iran's support for international terrorism is or Iran's domestic human rights abuses are really the core issue that should be driving U.S. policy. That really, that's not what they were saying. What they were saying, and quite openly, is that we want to build a sanctions wall because not only do we not, we don't want the United States to be able to re-enter the nuclear deal. We don't want to be able to resolve these other issues with Iran. We actually want to create something of an eternal conflict between the two countries that is immovable. That because of the politics surrounding lifting sanctions on Iran. Um, a successor administration like the Biden administration will just find it infeasible to be able to lift terrorism-related sanctions on Iran in order to return to the nuclear deal. Um, and that's really the point of tension that continues to drive the negotiations. Um, and, you know, I, I, we'll, we'll see if there's a resolution. I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic that we will see a resolution in Vienna on these issues. But to do so, the Biden administration will have to, you know, directly tackle uh, the point of tension that has been created by the Trump administration. And let me just explain that when we say they made it difficult for the Biden team to return to the JCPOA, this is not something that's not within the authority of President Biden. He, It's not something that he can't do from his office because during the Trump era, these were coming from the office of the presidency in the form of executive orders. So, President Biden essentially, if he chooses to, can reverse Trump's policies also in the form of executive orders. And it's more of a political cost, basically, for the Biden team when they talk about not being able to take some of these steps. Yeah, it's purely political. Um, you know, there was actually, if, you know, if, if you recall, there was... During the Obama era and after the JCPOA, there's just tons of legislation being proposed to limit Obama's ability to, um, you know, enforce and lift sanctions related to Iran's nuclear program. Um, during Trump, even though at the very early stages Republicans controlled both houses, they didn't put any legislation because they didn't feel a need to because the president could do what he wanted to do. Um, and that remains true today. They haven't changed. They haven't, you know, changed the president's unilateral authority. Um, to either impose or remove sanctions related to Iran. Um, so Biden has full discretion um, to lift sanctions in accordance with U.S. commitments under the JCPOA, including, you know, what, you know, I think many regard as really much broader commitments than merely lifting nuclear-related sanctions. Um, um, and it's the only hurdle is a purely political one. And we also hear this talk of, quote unquote, leverage here in Washington, mostly from Republicans, but also from some hawkish Democrats. Uh, they argue that Trump's sanctions, a maximum uh, pressure policy on Iran, provided a form of leverage over the Iranian government, that this leverage will be lost if Biden lifts some of those sanctions. And you recently had a piece in Newsweek magazine where you, first of all, explained this, this leverage, this quote-unquote leverage, failed to produce a single positive policy outcome during the Trump administration's tenure. And then you argue that, in fact, a U.S. return to the JCPOA and potentially lifting of some sanctions would, in fact, increase U.S. leverage. And you explain that this would happen in three important ways. Tell me what those are. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and just uh, to pull back just a little, you know, I think we talk about leverage in D.C. when really what we're talking about is the power to impose pain. Um, and no one questions the United States' power to impose pain on Iran. Um, well, it doesn't sound good when you call it the power to impose pain. So that's probably why a lot of people prefer to go with leverage. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people have a mistaken, I think there's just, a, a, you know, this, you certainly see this, you know, with the way the Republicans are talking about the issue right now, that they just have a mistaken idea as to what constitutes leverage. Leverage is, you know, we want to, do we have the power to change how a nation state like Iran is acting in ways anathema to our interest? Um, and we use leverage in order to, you know, get that change of behavior in ways that are uh, conducive to our interest. The power to impose pain is something else. We, we just have the power to, to hurt you even if we have no chance. And we saw that with the Trump administration over the last four years. You know, they crippled Iran's economy. Um, they imposed a sanctions program without any historical modern precedent. Um, and yet they didn't achieve a single policy objective that they set forth with Iran. In fact, things went in the exact reverse. Iran's nuclear program was allowed to leave the figurative box and accelerate. Um, Iran's regional activities took on a much more aggressive um, posture. Um, and, you know, pe people forget, but Iran, you know, basically test-fired um, missiles on U.S. forces in Iraq in response to the assassination of their general, Qasem Soleimani, um, which, you know, and the United States had no real response to that. Um, so, you know, yeah, the, the Trump administration certainly exhibited the power to impose pain, but it had also exhausted whatever leverage it had um, by the mere fact that there's not much more the United States can do. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that gives rise to really what these three points on how a return to the nuclear deal would help restore U.S. leverage with respect to Iran. Um, and the first thing I mentioned is just it would restore the U.S.'s rights under the nuclear deal, including its right to be um, a member of the Joint Commission overseeing um, developments in Iran's nuclear program and to address any developments that would appear to be problematic um, for the United States to be able to once again utilize the snapback mechanism at the United Nations. You know, at the end of the Trump administration's tenure, the Trump administration sought to unilaterally reimpose all of the UN, United Nations sanctions, pursuant to the snapback mechanism. Um, and it was, you know, roundly defeated at the Security Council, uh, unanimously, except for its own vote, um, stating that because Trump had withdrew from the JCPOA, Trump had ceded the ability to utilize that snapback mechanism. Um, you know, and as I address in that piece, the snapback mechanism actually has some importance to the United States because the United States is entering a deal at a time of political transition in Iran as Iran starts a, uh, is in the middle of campaign season for a new president. Um, and basically all the prognosticators think that a hardline president um, will be victorious. So, and we don't exactly know what posture that president will take towards the JCPOA. Um, so restoring that snapback mechanism um, is would really, you know, reestablish U.S. leverage with respect to Iran's compliance with the nuclear agreement. Um, the second point is just, you know, it allows the United States to reset sanctions on Iran in ways that actually will achieve some of the non-nuclear 
um, objectives that the United States has with respect to Iran. Um, you know, and I see that in my own practice where, you know, you, you represent, you provide legal counsel to parties that may be designated under a given sanctions authority. And, you know, in order for them to be removed by OFAC, um, they need to show a change in conduct or a change in behavior. Um, you know, and, and when a party gets delisted, the last thing they want to do is get put back on the list because they've already been on the radar. Um, and, you know, they're, they're very nervous about being put back on the sanctions list because they know how um, devastating that can be. So really by lifting a lot of the sanctions on, on parties that have been designated under the U.S.'s, you know, in really, you know, um, um, in bad faith designated under the U.S.'s counterterrorism authorities, um, it, those parties will really be um, keen on not engaging in activities that are anathema to U.S. interests, including, you know, activities related to, for instance, the IRGC. Um, you know, I, I know of cases where the IRGC has, where parties had divested the IRGC of ownership in them, and yet they remain sanctioned regardless because of a prior IRGC interest in them. Um, you know, the fact that, um, you know, if they were to be delisted, you know, those companies would presumably take, you know, um, su substantial steps to make sure that the IRGC didn't re gain a renewed interest in the companies. Um, whereas right now, if they're sanctioned anyway, who cares? Um, so it really, you know, establishes um, some leverage with respect to these non-nuclear sanctions objectives. And lastly, you know, it's just the Trump administration, despite its intention to focus the world's energies on other activities of Iran, including its regional activities and its support for international terrorism, um, the whole world was, I mean, and especially the U.S.'s major partners in Europe um, and elsewhere, were really just focused um, on how to preserve the JCPOA at a time when it was under such serious attack by the Trump administration. Um, and the, the idea that Biden would return to the JCPOA would allow um, the United States to really um, build a coalition again to address other activities of Iranian concern, whether that be what the Biden administration talks about in a longer, stronger deal with Iran with respect to its nuclear program, whether that involves Iran's regional activities, whether that involves Iran's ballistic missiles. You know, if the attention is not on the fact that the United States has abrogated its commitments under the nuclear deal and, and other world powers need to work to preserve that agreement in the interim, um, the, you know, the Biden administration may be able to refocus attention on activities of uh, prevailing concern re with respect to Iran. And you explain in your piece that leverage is mistaken for power. And we see here in Washington, we're not talking about the power to exert pain, which is something that sanctions do, but that doesn't necessarily translate to power to bring policy change on the other side. And I think that's the wrong assumption. And in the case of maximum pressure, we saw that that wasn't the case, that Iran was able, despite the pain, Iran was able to withstand this economic pressure. And at the end, it didn't really result in a change in their policy. And as the Iranian deputy foreign minister once told me in an interview, they started what they called maximum resistance in the face of maximum pressure. So explain how Iran resisted this immense economic pressure and in a way that it didn't lead to any policy change in Tehran. Yeah, well, I mean, ironically, what it 
forces Iran to do is really make its economy underground. So, you know, one of the problems the United States has is that, you know, Iran's financial institutions or its entire financial sector, um, you know, something like money laundering is ripe, where um, um, it's, you know, transactions, you have a bunch of front companies set up by Iran in foreign countries that handle Iranian oil you know, covertly. Um, you use, you know, other countries' flags on your vessels to transport Iranian origin oil. You transfer money through banks, you know, disguised as the assets of some other commodity. Um, those are all things that the United States thinks are bad that Iran does. Um, those are things we want to change. And yet the entire sanctions, by imposing the sanctions as we do, Iran is forced, has, is left no other choice but to engage in that behavior if it wants to keep its economy af afloat. Um, and so, you know, that has just occurred at a, at a rapid pace in Iran because there's no other way for Iran to be able to, for instance, sell its oil to sell other um, uh, commodities that it produces to the outside world other than to do so in ways that the United States regards as illicitly. Um, but, you know, what's ironic is that, you know, I Iran has been under what is, if, you know, in, in somewhat an effective international boycott of its economy, and really that boycott took on historical proportions under Trump. But this goes all the way back to around 2006, 2008, 2010. So Iran's been under these conditions for 10 to 12 years. Um, and even during the period where sanctions were relaxed under the JCPOA, you know, they were relaxed for two years and not many parties wanted to go back into Iran because there was a lot of reluctance and hesitance as one of the aftershocks of um, the prior sanctions. So Iran's economy never really restored its relationships to the outside world, even during that interim period. Um, and when you consider that a, a country is under such punishing economic sanctions for a period of 10, 12, 14 years, it's no surprise that they're able to successfully adapt their economy in ways that insulate themselves from the effect of U.S. sanctions. Um, and, you know, that's also one of the reasons I talk about what it looks like for leverage to be restored um, in the Newsweek piece is that really what the United States has done is it's exhausted its any sanctions leverage it had um, by its, you know, imposition of, what, uh, of, of punishing sanctions for this extenuated period of time in ways and in a situation in which we have seen Iran's economy stabilize time and time again. Um, and that renders really U.S. sanctions uh, an exercise in futility, that we don't really have the ability to change Iran's conduct if Iran is going to be able to successfully adapt to our sanctions, if Iran's going to be able to stabilize its economy in light of our sanctions, and if we have exhausted the ability to impose additional sanctions because there's not much left of Iran's economy on which we, on which the United States could impose sanctions. Um, and really, there's almost nothing left. I mean, the, during the last few months of the Trump administration, they really exhausted all of the sanctions that, that could be imposed with respect to Iran. Um, so in, in, in a situation where you've exhausted the ability to impose additional pressure um, and yet Iran's economy is stabilized, whatever leverage, I mean, you've lost all leverage to change Iran's conduct in ways that would be amenable to U.S. interest. Um, and that's why really a restoration of the JCPOA and a resetting of the U.S.'s sanctions posture towards Iran allows the United States to 
you know, figure out how we could restore that sanctions leverage, um, particularly with respect to Iran's non-nuclear activities of concern to the United States. And when we talk about this power to exert pain, we know most of that pain is actually transferred to the population as opposed to the government. It's the Iranian middle classes, working classes who pay the price for this economic pressure. Tell me about that pain and this pressure on the population because Iranians are now fighting a pandemic. They have been fighting a deadly pandemic under the Trump administration, now during Biden, as sanctions haven't really been eased. Um, Iran has been the epicenter of the pandemic in the Middle East, and they are having a very hard time basically dealing with the virus. Talk about the human costs of these economic sanctions on the country. Yeah, I mean, well, I think at, 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 you know, at the most general level, what it really does is it, it is stolen from an entire generation of Iranians, um, you know, a generation that if I were in Iran, I would be part of, you know, a, a young generation um, coming of age, um, finding their place in the world, um, discovering, you know, what kind of employment they want to do. It's really robbed them um, of the pursuit of, you know, w- in, whatever they're looking at to fulfill their lives. I mean, you look at the unemployment rates among the Iranian youth over the past 10 years. I mean, it is just uh, devastating, um, you know, even beyond depression level. Um, um, numbers just staggering um, as to uh, how many young Iranians are out of work, un- unable to find jobs because Iran's economy has been, you know, cratered for the last decade uh, due to the effect of U.S. sanctions. Um, and then you have, you know, even some more, um, you know, pressing issues, more immediate issues such as Iran's inability to access life-saving medicines um, due to the effect of uh, U.S. sanctions and the inability to conduct basic financial transfers relating to those medicines. Um, you consider, you know, that was a problem even during the Obama administration um, that was left, you know, uh, unfortunately unresolved by that administration um, that continued during the Trump administration and then took on, you know, again, historic proportion once COVID hit. Um, and all of a sudden Iran was not only, you know, um, subject to the the typical depredations of being unable to access um, medicines to treat basic cancers and the like, but now had a uh, pandemic um, uh, under which, you know, whether it would be able to access basic medical devices related to the treatment of COVID, whether it is still able to access vaccines um, to inoculate the population against COVID. You know, all of those things have been greatly affected due to the uh, due to U.S. sanctions. And we know that there have been, there are and there have been exemptions or exceptions to sanctions. When you talk to U.S. officials, there's always this talking point that food and medicine and humanitarian items are not sanctions and that kind of trade can continue with Iran. But In reality, we see on the other side, as you were just talking about, the shortages, um, and it seems like these exemptions have not been effective enough. Tell me how this exemption is set up and why they haven't been as effective as they should be. Yeah, I mean, as as a general matter, um, you know, the, the kind of uh, statement that OFAC typically puts out is that um, generally um, U.S. and foreign persons 
are able to conduct trade in humanitarian goods, including food, medicine, and medical devices, um, so long as the parties to the transaction are not designated under the U.S.'s counterterrorism, its counterproliferation, or its human rights authorities. Um, you know, provided that those conditions, provided that you're not dealing with such designated persons, um, sanctioned parties, then the, the trade is um, accepted from any other prohibitions under U.S. law. Um, the core issue is that almost all of Iran's banks are designated under one of those authorities. Um, so in order to conduct trade in, um, you know, medicine with a for foreign pharmaceutical company, uh, the foreign pharmaceutical company wants to be paid um, and they want to, you know, find a way to transfer that payment to them. And it has to originate from an Iranian financial institution. But that Iranian bank um, is almost in all cases designated under either the counterterrorism authority, the counterproliferation authority, the human rights authority. So there's no way for a foreign party to um, be in receipt of um, payment with respect to the whatever medicine being traded with Iran um, without being subject to sanctions. Now, OFAC's response would be, well, there are some banks, and we have created some, ex we, we've, so for instance, when they designated the Central Bank of Iran under the counterterrorism authority, they also issued a general license and some interpretive guidance that stated um, that the Central Bank of Iran could be used um, with respect to trade and humanitarian items. Well, the other problem is that even when they do create those exceptions, a lot of times the foreign banks who are, you know, banking on behalf of the, the foreign pharmaceutical companies don't want to handle any transactions for Iran anyway. And part of the reason they do is because there's no, commer there's no commercial value for them in doing so. And there's a lot of legal risk. And it doesn't matter how many, you know, I've, I've done this, I do this work in my, you know, in, 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 as well, which is you write an advisory opinion for a foreign bank um, explaining that the transaction is accepted from the, any applicable U.S. sanctions prohibitions. And the bank says, okay, but we still don't want to do it because we're not making much money off the deal. And there does remain legal risk. You can't give me 100% assurance that it's not going to, any given transfer is not going to go through a sanctioned party. So why are we going to take that risk? Um, and it's, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, some people have a saying about OFAC where OFAC is able to prevent any party from doing anything, but is unable to prevent, to, to, to have any party do something. Um, and that's really the way sanctions work. OFAC can ensure that a foreign bank doesn't conduct a transaction with an Iranian financial institution. But OFAC is, 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 you know, throws up its hands and says, well, we have no, we can't do anything. We can't make them do anything. Um, and that really, again, that's, a, that's another, you know, core tension is, is if, you know, that I think OFAC is actually, to the Biden administration's credit, they're actually considering this issue right now. They're undergoing a pretty substantial review process on the effect of sanctions on humanitarian trade. We'll see what the result of that uh, review is. But, you know, one thing that has been raised with, with them is that you can't impose broad prohibitions um, or, or render sanctionable um, conduct and expect, well, we'll create this tiny exception here that allows for parties to deal 
with Iran. And then we'll have an expectation that those parties will take advantage of that narrow exception to actually engage Iran, because it never turns out that way. Um, and, you know, until that, you know, I think there needs to be some consideration in future as to whether, um, you know, humanitarian exception, one, whether we want to use these humanitarian exceptions in the future, because they don't seem to work. Um, and if they don't seem to work, you know, does the United States need to rethink how it imposes sanctions, how it renders conduct sanctionable, and whether it needs to pull back a little bit from how it does so if it wants to preserve um, the ability of, you know, Iranians to be able to access life-saving medicines, to be able to access COVID-19 vaccines and the like. And let me make a note to our audience who don't know, you mentioned OFAC. OFAC is the Office of Foreign Assets Control under the U.S. Department of the Treasury. And it's the main office that administers and enforces economic and trade sanctions. So it's the main entity that's responsible for these and to your point, when we're talking about legal person or legal department sitting in a company, it's not only what's permitted on paper, as OFAC says, it's also the risk that they're determining um, with sanctions and then the amount of the business that they're getting from the Iranian side, basically the headache that they assume is not worth dealing with. And when we talk about the exemptions on food and medicine and humanitarian items, that's one issue. And at the end of the day, these are items. So you need to ship them from one place to another. And that complicates the process because you need shipping, you need insurance, you need transactions. But let's talk about tech companies because there are also exemptions for tech companies to provide certain services, some free, some not, to Iranians. And uh, certain things are permitted on paper, but we have been dealing for years with this issue of overcompliance when it comes to tech companies, in some cases compliance, but a lot of times also overcompliance. Talk about these tech exceptions and some of the issues that have been happening with tech companies. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, what you have really is, I mean, you see this a lot. I mean, so the um, exception that you're talking about is a, is a license. It's called General License D1, which is really, a, a license is an exception to the U.S.'s embargo with Iran. So it actually allows a limited form of in commercial interaction between the United States and Iran. In this case, the United States and the Iranian people. Because, for instance, the Iranian people are, are able to have Gmail accounts um, by virtue of general license D1, you know, a U.S. Per Apple is able to s send and sell its products um, in Iran by virtue of general license D1 um, and the like. Um, again, the issue is, for instance, you know, does Apple have a sales outfit in Iran? No, because it's not it, it's not as simple as um, being able to to sell a laptop in Iran. It's also well, we need to have a banking relationship. We need to set up relationships with, you know, we we need to have storefronts. We need to we need to have franchise agreements, um, and the like. And those things, those categories of transactions, are not authorized under General License D one. Um, and moreover, Apple would have, you know, be at risk of reputational harm um, if it decided to engage in any of those transactions with Iran. Um, and that's really, you know, and you see this 
a lot because the the embargo, the prohibitions of the embargo are as broad as can be. So, you know, you're a, a U.S. person is prohibited from providing any service to Iran. So if you're a PayPal, for instance, and you're, um, and you're remitting a transfer between um, two friends um, who go out to lunch together and they want to share a bill, and in the payment message it says, you know, eight Iranian food. Um, and this is in the U.S. We're talking about yep. people in the United States having Iranian or Persian food made in the United States. Yep, two people exactly. And you put in the payment message, say, you know, Iran restaurant. Um, you know, PayPal is liable to um, either reject the transfer or inquire um, from the parties for additional information with respect to the transfer. Um, and this, you know, gets a lot of people very angry and understandably so, because, um, it does feel, you know, for Iranian Americans, it does feel discriminatory. Um, from a legal perspective, um, you know, if, if PayPal were to, for instance, block the transaction and to hold the payment while it inquired into it, that would be wrong. But for them to just conduct an inquiry, they're actually acting somewhat consistent with their sanctions obligation, because if they do feel that there is a risk, and they don't know for sure what the transaction relates to, but if they do feel, hey, this is this an is are they dealing in, a, in an Iranian origin good located in the United States? Well, that could be sanctionable. And what we have with respect to the U.S.'s embargo with Iran is a strict liability regime, which means it doesn't matter if you did it knowing it, intentionally, knowingly, recklessly, or negligently. If you did it you violated the law, um, whether you knew it or not. Um, so PayPal has to take extra precautions um, to be sure that whatever item is being, you know, whatever item is underlying a given remittance, that the item is not itself um, subject to U.S. sanctions. That puts them in a bad position. It puts them, it, it puts, you know, the two Iranian-Americans going out to eat at an, Iranian, at an Iran restaurant in Virginia in a bad position because they feel like they've been discriminated against, very understandably. Um, and really, you know, the challenge, the, the party who's kind of been inoculated from criticism um, and really is, is OFAC, which really, there are ways to resolve this issue. One is not have a strict liability regime. Um, one is to, you know... <laughs> At, at, a, at, a, at a big level, say, well, why do we have this embargo in, in the place? Why are we limiting the ability of the American people and the Iranian people to interact with each other? Why don't we have a much more targeted domestic sanctions program targeting bad actors in Iran rather than Iran in, in its entirety? Um, because it really is limiting on interactions between the U.S. and Iranian people. And it really creates a bad taste um, for a lot of people here in the United States um, as well, um, in the example we give where, hey, you know, I'm just trying to go out to lunch with my friend in Virginia. We go to an Iran restaurant and you're telling me that you need an inquiry, you know, you know, you need to see the bill or something because you want to check to make sure that the transaction is not sanctionable. Um, so, you know, and, and I understand a lot of the frustration generated at a lot of the PayPals and the like, and, and I think there's things that those companies can do um, to that they can do a better job of. But really, a lot of the attention should be placed on uh, the White House and OFAC and the Department of Treasury, where they're administering these broad prohibitions that force uh, these private parties into very um, uncomfortable situations 
um, and force them to take actions that feel discriminatory towards Iranian Americans. And that, again, just cut off entirely the American and the Iranian people from really any interaction with each other whatsoever. And I've experienced this myself. We were on assignment in Virginia with a non-Iranian colleague, by the way, and we had Persian lunch in Virginia. And we're trying to share the cost on Venmo and the note said Persian lunch or Persian kebab and Venmo blocked the transaction for a while until they inquired into it. And this wasn't even the word Iran. This was the word Persian. Um, talk about some of these examples of absurd examples that you hear about sanctions that a lot of people may not know that Iranians and Iranian Americans are experiencing on a daily basis, a German American or a Turkish American, any hyphenated um, citizens, if they go back to their homeland with their ties, for example, Iranians trying to check their bank accounts, something as simple as that, just going online and checking how much money you have in your bank account when you're traveling to Iran is something that is subject to sanctions. Talk about some of these absurd examples uh, that you've seen sanctions impacting the lives of Iranians and Iranian Americans. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, the example you give is one where you know, for instance, my wife is Iranian American. If she were to travel to Iran and check her U.S. bank account, um, the U.S. bank account may is not going to allow her access to check the account because it would be providing a service to Iran because she is in Iran accessing that service. So that would be actually a prohibited uh, transaction by the bank. And what the, what the bank often does is says, well, oh, you travel to Iran. So what we're actually going to do is we don't want to maintain a bank account for you because we don't want to be at risk that at any given time you may be in Iran. And if you're in Iran checking the account, accessing funds from the account, et cetera, then we're engaged in a sanctions violation. So it's just easier for us not to bank you at all. So we're just going to close the account. That happens quite frequently. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very real thing. Um, and again, this is a matter that there's nothing really the bank can do about it because the bank would be engaged in a sanctions violation if a U.S. person were to access their account inside Iran. Um, and again, that's it's, it's nothing. Ironically, people say, "Well, you know, it's it's nothing typical. It's nothing that is limited to it being an Iranian American. If I, as an American, travel to Iran and access my bank account, that likewise would be a sanctions violation." Um, and again, that's just an issue that OFAC could deal with, could handle. It could, you know, either limit the relevant prohibition. It could create an, a, a license exception. Um, there's ways it can remedy those problems. Those problems have been brought to its attention for a number of years, and they just haven't done anything about it, um, unfortunately. Um, you know, the, I, really the most egregious case that I can think of is if when you have Iranian students on student visas coming to the United States, and they come to the United States, they bring what cash they need for living expenses with them. They open a bank account, they put it in the bank account, and then they go buy, three weeks later, they go buy groceries while living on campus, and they check out, and their bank card, debit card doesn't work anymore. Um, and they're forced to be embarrassed there at the grocery store because they can't pay for the items. They call their bank. Their bank says, your account's closed. We'll send the check in the mail for the balance of the funds in the account. You'll get it in, you know, should, you should get it in three weeks. 
And you're thinking, well, here's a student from a foreign country on campus at an American university. Whatever funds they have have been deposited in that bank account. And now they have no bank account, no access to the funds because the bank said it's going to take three to four weeks for the check to be delivered to them. And you wonder, so how are they supposed to survive in the interim period of three to four weeks? There was no basis for the bank to close their account other than the fact that the bank just didn't want to handle the risk of um, maintaining an account on behalf of a Iranian national who may return to Iran um, at any given point in time. Um, and again, that's this is an issue. I mean, it's just you know, it's it's it happens quite a bit, and I've I've talked to a lot of these students put in the position, and it's just devastating um, for them, not just economically, but you know, really psychologically and emotionally too, to be placed in such a vulnerable position here in the United States, trying to get an education in the United States and being treated in that manner. Um, and these matters have been brought to OFAC's attention as well. Um, and the agency, again, has been unwilling to take any action to remediate the problem, including by, you know, having a roundtable. I mean, it, it could be as simple as having a roundtable with some of the bigger financial institutions in the United States, letting them know that the United States will not take a, will, will, will take a very lenient enforcement posture to banks that maintain accounts on behalf of such Iranian students. Um, but I think, you know, for me, that's always been one of the more devastating examples um, that I hear from. You're right. It's usually the company like PayPal or Venmo or Etsy that's being called out or the bank. And you rarely see OFAC's name come up in these outcries. And the Iranian-American community and also the U.S. civil society has been pushing back against these sanctions and this policy, essentially this economic blockade, for national security, peace and diplomacy, foreign policy reasons, but also specifically for these pressures that, in the examples that we've been talking about, that impact the community, the Iranian-American community, and essentially our loved ones back in Iran. How effective have these movements been of the Iranian-American community and the civil society here in the U.S. in pushing back against this policy of economic sanctions? I mean, it's had some effect. I mean, it, it, it certainly is the case that, for instance, when there's a natural disaster in Iran and there, for instance, an earthquake or flooding a couple of years ago, um, even with the COVID situation, where there is an immediate need um, for a change in U.S. law to allow U.S. persons to provide relief support um, to affected areas in Iran. Um, civil society groups um, in the United States, including Iranian-American organizations, have been front and center in pushing whatever administration is in, a, is in, the, is in power to change the laws to allow for immediate relief um, and to effectuate that relief. And I think, you know, I, at that level, it's been pretty successful. That You know, I can imagine in this current environment with the Biden administration in office, that if something were to arise that would appear egregious on its face, um, that these groups would be able to have, have the connections, have the contacts in the White House, and would be able to put the pressure on the White House to effectuate an immediate change in the relevant policy. 
on the broader issue as to how sanctions generally, you know, how, how these broad sanctions are affecting Iran and Iran's general access to medicine and medical devices, how it's, um, you know, really taking away the livelihoods of an entire generation of Iranians, it's been much less successful. Um, because that means that, because what we're really asking is for a really substantial changes um, in U.S. policy. Um, and, you know, that's a much, that's a much steeper climb um, for these groups to take. And it's going to take a lot, I mean, it's going to take a lot more effort. I mean, a lot of the groundwork's been built up and I think there's a lot of opportunity. You know, one of the things I discussed was, well, why do we maintain an embargo if, you know, the whole, you saw this at the end of the Obama administration where they talked about, we don't do embargoes anymore, we do targeted sanctions. And, you know, at, at a conference that I hosted, there was a OFAC a person from OFAC there and I asked, well, you have embargoes on Iran, you have an embargo on Cuba, um, so you guys do do embargoes. You know, and the response was basically, well, those are kind of grandfathered in, meaning, yeah, we understand that, but politically it's really challenging for us to do anything about it, um, which, you know, appeared to signify they would prefer to do something about it, they understand that it is a problem. Um, but, you know, until the politics change on these matters, they're not going to be able to do anything. Um, but again, you know, so, you know, the, the fact that they were, you know, the fact that the end of the Obama administration, they were speaking in those terms, I think, um, is the result of a lot of the efforts of these civil society groups, including Iranian American organizations. And I think, you know, the continued pressure may be able to bear fruit in the future. And let me remind our audience that in 2003, when a devastating earthquake hit the city of Bam in Iran, this was in the Bush era, there was a temporary easing of sanctions so that humanitarian aid could reach Iran. And then in 2012, under the Obama administration, another earthquake hit Azerbaijan, the province of Azerbaijan in Iran, and there was another temporary easing of some restrictions to permit aid to get to Iran. And finally, I want to go back to the history of sanctions on Iran. You were just talking about these being grandfathered in, and we know sanctions started sometime after the 1979 revolution and various U.S. administrations, both Democrat and Republican, have been piling on more and more sanctions on Iran over the past four decades. Walk me through the history of these sanctions imposed on Iran. Yes, I mean, so post the hostage crisis, the first um, substantial sanction placed on Iran is in 1987. Um, this is in the middle of the tanker wars um, between the U.S. and Iran, which is kind of a peripheral conflict to the Iran-Iraq war. Um, and in 1987, the Reagan administration imposed a ban on the importation of Iranian origin oil. Um, that became generally, eventually extended to basically an import ban. Um, in 95, 96, during the Clinton administration, um, the Clinton administration under pressure from Congress, who was seeking to, uh, who was seeking to impose its own sanctions, the Clinton administration imposed a full embargo on Iran, which is a ban on exports, a ban on imports, 
Um, so, you know, that is where um, we see the beginnings of the end of commercial exchange between the United States and Iran. And that's been in effect now for 25 years. Um, starting around in the Bush administration, we start seeing what are called secondary sanctions. And secondary sanctions are sanctions that target foreign pers- foreign countries and foreign party interactions with Iran. So you're not limiting in exchange between the U.S. and Iran now. You're actually li- trying to limit exchange between foreign persons in Iran. Um, and you start to see that at the tail end of the Bush administration as the nuclear pro- as, as the nuclear issue progresses, uh, where they start targeting some of Iran's banks um, and, uh, and other sub- significant members of Iran's economy. And then really, when Obama comes into office, Congress is in full legislating force and they're legislating constantly broader and broader sanctions on Iran from all the way from 2010 to 2014 when the nuclear negotiations continue. And those sanctions effectively isolate Iran's entire financial sector, um, limit its ability to conduct oil sales overseas, to repatriate any oil revenues that it generates overseas, um, and leads to, um, I don't, I I wouldn't say it resulted in, but it leads into um, the negotiations that produced the JCPOA. Um, and post, as we know, post the JCPOA in May 2018, Trump left the uh, uh, JCPOA um, and reimposed sanctions and started this tract of imposing sectoral sanctions on Iran that targeted all the productive sectors of Iran's economy, not just its financial and oil sector, but also its copper, iron, steel, aluminum sectors, and it really limited Iran's ability to engage in any cross-border um, commercial exchange. All right, Tyler, thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast. Yep, thanks so much for having me. That was Tyler Collis, a counsel at Ferrari and Associates here in Washington. And thank you for listening to the Iran podcast. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran podcast. You can also support us by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast. And then you can click on support. Until next time, goodbye.